Hi, my name is Annie Grossman, and I'm a dog trainer. This podcast is brought to you by School for the Dogs, a Manhattan-based facility I own and operate along with some of the city's finest dog trainers. During this podcast, we'll be answering your questions, geeking out on animal behavior, discussing pet trends, and interviewing industry experts. Welcome to School for the Dogs podcast. So I am here with uh, a woman who I have known for three years. I met her in July 2015. I could almost tell you the date. That's that's how important this day was to, exactly. <laughs> to me and, um, and to everyone at School for the Dogs. Her name is Anna Marie Johnson. She is our general manager and, uh, and has been training with us uh, for almost three years and uh, is just the smiliest, sweetest person and all the dogs love her. I think the people love her too. Um. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, but Anna Marie, tell us a little bit about uh, how you came to be the ray of sunshine you are at School for the Dogs. Oh, I don't know how I know you became the you ray of born, sunshine. You were born in a small town in California. San Francisco. <laughs> Uh, not so much small. Um, yeah, I, so, I picture you raised in the woods by like fairies and bunnies. No, no. <laughs> I was raised in I was raised in Daly City, uh, but uh, basically grew up in San Francisco, and um, there were no fairies and bunnies in my backyard. The fact that we got a squirrel that came to my house in like high school was like the biggest moment of my mom's life. Um, it's a running joke, actually, that uh, a friend was at my house, and my mom just started screaming for everyone in the whole house to come look out the back window because the squirrel had arrived in the back. Of, and yeah, the squirrel had the arrived? Squirrel, well, we didn't get squirrels in Daily oh, City. What color squirrel was it? Do you remember? The brown squirrel. Brown. It was, it was, Have you seen black squirrels? Yeah. Do you, is that like a New York thing, the black squirrel? We don't have, I mean, we didn't have black squirrels in California. It was just the brown, boring, you know, whatever, gray squirrels. And then at, where I went to college at UC Davis, I mean, we're overrun with squirrels. Um, that was actually a funny thing. Like, one day on campus, all of a sudden, all the squirrels were, some of the squirrels were spray-painted. And it was actually a big issue, because um, Davis has, like, a really big animal department and everything like that. They had actually um, t- taken, and they were spray-painting squirrels because they were giving... Who's they? Like, one of the departments, one of, like, the animal research departments, because they wanted to test a prophylactic on the squirrels, so they were giving some of the male squirrels drugs to make them uh, not reproduce, because the squirrel population was crazy, so they wanted to have, like, a non-invasive way. So, so what were, color were they spray painting them? They were like green and orange. <laughs> so like, get, and, they, and then there was all these like all these like poor undergrads on campus that were like sitting on the corners and they were like recording because they wanted to see preemptively if this like the whatever drug they were giving them was affecting their like natural behaviors, so to speak, rather than just reproductive behavior. Um, so all these uh, all these students were just sitting on these corners and they were like had their little notebooks recording animal behavior of the squirrels. I did not do this. I've had an idea that I've never done, but if somebody's listening to this and would like to do it, I get in touch because I think it would be it would be an interesting experiment to spray paint rats in the subway. For what purpose? So you could train them. 
to do stuff. Trick training for subway rats. Oh, that's disgusting. Is it? I don't know. I mean, there are people all over the world are training rats. Most of them just are in cages, but why can't... I mean, the rats are already pretty well trained to, <laughs> to find pizza. I mean, you would, have, you would have to determine that the rats were staying in the same... Either same subway line or same... I guess you would have... I mean, you would so have... So the to, first step would be spray painting one and then following yes, it. Yes, the first or, step would be spray painting one. Or microchipping it. Yeah, microchipping would be hard, though, because, like, you would have to get, like... You would have to actively catch the squirrel and then, like... The scan rat. It. Well, yeah, the rat. <laughs> squirrel. The rat. You would have to actively grab the rat and then... Yeah, I'm not going to do any rat grabbing, but, you know... Ilana's coming to New York this summer. There you go. <laughs> Our trainer, uh, Ilana, has has uh, a Bobby bookshelf, an Ikea Bobby bookshelf that yeah. she's she's divided into different floors. On in each floor, there's a different mouse family that lives this. She has, she has a, a mouse apartment building in her, in her apartment. I love but you. Um, grew up in San Francisco. Surprise. Uh, did not actually have any dogs growing up. Um, did you want dogs? Yeah, I always wanted dogs. Um, we got my first Why, pet. why couldn't you have a dog or would I didn't you It wasn't dog? that we couldn't have a dog. It was that my mom didn't want a dog. There was a family... Like, we always loved animals. So... For a long time, the family joke was that we didn't have any pets, but we had the cute little fruit flies that came into our house. So my mom had a little jingle that was, some people have cats, some people have dogs, we have flies. Um, That was her jingle? That was my my mom's jingle. Did she sing it? Yeah. I want to hear the song. Well, like, it was just like, some people have cats, some people have dogs, we have flies. And that was it. And then she would like throw the little. Flies I think your mom should not she, should not pursue that jingle she, writing it's career. Not a good jingle. <laughs> and she would she would put the flies out the window or like you know say whatever. And uh, we actually didn't get our first family pet until we were I was seven. And the only reason I remember like the exact time frame because her name was Mississippi. And she was a little cat. Uh, little cat. She was actually a regular sized cat from. Uh, uh, San Francisco SPCA, and we had gone down, because um, San Francisco SPCA, every year, they actually take over the windows of Macy's, um, which I always thought would have been a really good idea at the Macy's here, but whatever. Um, they take over the windows. Oh, that is a good idea. Of, they take over the windows at Macy's. They've done it for years, and they actually have, like, volunteers down there, and so they do, they put kittens, they put cats and, uh, like, dogs in the windows for, like, adoptions. So we always used to go down there, and she actually... Kitty, inventive name, was not actually <laughs> was not actually in the window, but she was like down the block because they were still they had other animals for adoption. So we loaded her up in her little box in the middle of downtown San Francisco Union Square, um, and we brought her home. And she was excellent. And, K- and Kitty was a cat. Kitty was a cat. Okay, I know. just checking. Yeah, yeah just, just making sure. Just to reiterate, Kitty was a cat, and um, because in the world that would be that would fall into the group of ironic dog names. I know. No, we, not, <laughs> we were not. We were non-inventive family. So we had Kitty till I was 11, um, and then she 
passed away, which was hard. And then we got two new cats from the San Francisco SPCA. Um, but my mom was still insistent. She didn't want a dog. She could handle cats. Um, part of it also was she said it was too much of an emotional bond, which I feel like is a really illogical statement. But she felt bad. She felt like the cats didn't necessarily care when you left. <laughs> the dogs really had a connection to you, and so that's why she didn't want to deal with them. Um, because she felt bad if we ever left. Oh. Which, I mean, it's, 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 I can see that. So, um, she, we so then she had cats up, because she she didn't want do- a dog that would have to be alone. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And weren't you guys home a lot? Yeah. But, <laughs> but you would go in, in and out? Yeah. Okay. She just felt bad. Um, so, we ended up... Donna and Pepper then became another inventive name, Poochie and Poochie Mama, um, because (laughs) we discovered that they weren't sisters because Poochie, um, in her hiding space, we heard, we discovered a very odd noise one day, and Poochie, being the very special behaviorally cat that she was, um, continually for the rest of her days would nurse on her mother. Um, even though there clearly was not anything left, she would just nurse on the fur. So Poochie Mama had this gross yellow discolored fur. <laughs> kind of like a gray garden situation. Yeah, it was very weird. Um, <laughs> and then, um, so all this time, in part because we had had the cats growing up and everything like that, I had actually in high school um, volunteered for San Francisco SPCA um, as a high schooler, um, which... I would recommend um, to any high schooler. It was an awesome way for me to hang out with cats during the summer and also crank out my summer reading. Because <laughs> you were hanging out with I cats. Would, yeah, yeah, I was hanging out with cats, and they would sit on my lap, and I would get through my summer reading. It was awesome. Um, uh, which was also very funny, I thought, because come senior year of high school, um, I actually won the service award, which I thought was, I was like, oh, I'm really glad that I got the service award. But I was kind of like, all I was doing was sitting with cats. <laughs> Wasn't well, that a lesson that went, you exactly. should, your job should always be that fun? Exactly. Um, <laughs> then I went to UC Davis, um, and I had grand visions of me. Um, I've always been a little bit of a nerdy child, um, so I always really liked history of medicine kind of thing, so I actually went into UC Davis as a classics major, and um, I thought classics would be the way to go in terms of my history of medicine desires. Um, my winter quarter of freshman year, I realized um, in one of my history of medicine classes that there was an alternative major named science and technology studies that didn't require me to take Latin, so I dropped out (laughs) of Latin, the one thing I've ever dropped out of. Um, And then I got my major in science and technology studies. Uh, I was able to double major, so I did evolutionary anthropology. So I studied monkeys. But all along this path, um, sophomore year of college, I got an internship at uh, the National Library of Medicine. Um, Did you, did, so were you thinking you were going to do vet work? No, No. never. So I was volunteering while doing my undergrad. You were just like, hey, I like animals? Yep. So I did, I volunteered for the Yola County SPCA, um, which was a very small foster-based organization. And I really liked doing that. I was hanging out with dogs all the time, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I still just kind of envisioned myself, oh, I'm going to do this academia. I'm going to become, you know, professor or whatever the heck I want. I mean, it's thinking. With, part of this is interesting to me because I feel like you made choices that never would have occurred to me to, like, and I, and I think we bo- we're both interested in animals and we both get, 
into the nerdy science of it. Yeah. But I think I just always felt like, well, I'm not good at science. That's not, like, something I'm yeah, good yeah. at. And so I can't be a vet. Yeah. And I don't know what other options Yeah, for me, are. It was, for me, it was a different position. It, but, but, I, but I also didn't, I, I literally don't think I knew that there were people out there researching animals and that you could. Yeah. You could. Oh, you mean my, my monkey research? Well, I, I mean, you, know, well, <laughs> you also have a master's well, in researching true. dogs. But I, I don't think that I thought that was like a job option. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, and so it's was, cool that you, so it's cool that you did. Yeah. And I had, you know, going to UC Davis, as Annie had mentioned, it's a very prominent vet school. Um, so there were actually, you know, there was actually an undergraduate major in animal science, but at this point in time, I knew I liked animals. Um, but I still had this whole dream of, you know, doing whatever with history you know, of medicine. Cause at that point oh. I knew I didn't want to be a vet. But is that why you went to UC Davis then? I mean, as opposed to any other school, was it because it had a program like that? No, no, no. It was just convenient. Yeah, <laughs> I got in other schools, and UC Davis gave me the best uh, financial aid package. <laughs> um, so yeah, there was no reason for me at the end of the day initially was for me to go to Davis for animals. It wasn't. You know, this wasn't a plan. Um, so I was still volunteering and did animal stuff on the side. I had all these roommates that did animal science stuff, which was cool. Um, but I didn't, you know, it wasn't, a, you know, I had no point in my mind that I was, oh, I was going to transfer or anything like that. In part because uh, a lot of the animal science stuff, because I had roommates that were, um, you know, <laughs> Davis being a vet school also has a very large agriculture <laughs> program. So it was like, oh, you know, we're going to go to the, you know, UC Davis run slaughterhouse and like all that kind of stuff. Cause it was a very ag driven school. Right. Um, well, I th- people, I think it's easy to forget this, but up until very recently, if you were a vet, you were working with farm yeah, animals. Exactly. Yeah. You're working with horses, farm animals. Now there, and there's still vets that where that's, the only thing they yeah, do my roommate, is treat cows. One of my right? old roommates, um, she just, she got her uh, PhD studying canine genetics, but she just announced the other day that she is officially going to study uh, equine. Um, so that is going to be her her forte. Actually, both of my roommates that were animal science majors, neither of them are doing companion animal science, um, <laughs> which is interesting. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of how I viewed animal science at UC Davis. Was, I was like, oh, I don't really, you know, I don't, you know, want to go to a slaughter house to study classes or whatever. So ended up in D.C. for a summer. Um, I was working at the National Library of Medicine. I was studying really, really old books, which was very cool. Um, but I actually had this grand epiphany. My brother came to visit, and I'm telling him my future goals. I'm going, ah, oh, you know, I'm going to live in this house, and I'm going to have acreage. I'm going to have all the horses and piggies and <laughs> Uh, and animals and all this kind of stuff. And my brother just like not meaning to say anything was just like, um, how are you going to do this when you have a PhD? I was like, oh crap. <laughs> yeah. Cause I'm actually going to have to work. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to just play with animals all the time. Cause that was ultimately kind of, you know, what my grand thought was. So kind of had a panic attack in the middle of DC. Wait, how, why, why can't those two dreams be coexistent again? And, well, like, for me, it was, like, I really envisioned myself as, like, just permanently in that position of, like, animals all around me, right? But then I was, like, oh, my whole plan in that sense was, like, oh, I'm going to be an academic or professor. And, you know, that is a rigorous 
can be a rigorous dog. So at that point, I was like, oh, it was just kind of a realization because like I want to hang out with animals rather than studying them. And yeah, exactly. Yeah, because that was another thing that I also saw from like my friends that were animal science majors was um, more more of a kind of analytical approach. And, you know, both of us like science and all that kind of stuff, but it was almost like the animal becoming subject um, uh, of kind of just like more of a like a robotic analytical side of things of just like animal as subject as opposed to animal as being and kind of researching the similarities and that kind of thing. Um, so I had a little breakdown in the middle of DC, called my mom. I was walking to the Trader Joe's in Georgetown. I'm crying on the phone in the middle of the <laughs> middle of DC. And I'm saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to get my PhD. You're like, <laughs> I don't want to go to fancy school. I, I know, just exactly. hang out with I don't the want puppies so, and the ponies. Exactly. And the <laughs> my mom did ask me, she said, are you going to drop out? And then I was like, no, I'm not going to drop out. Um, but but I this did. was when you were an undergrad. Yeah. Oh. Um, and my mom just, are you dropping out? And I said, no, I'm not going to drop out. So I ended up reconfiguring my life a little bit. Um, I emailed the rescue organization that I was working with at the time, and I said, hey, does anyone need any employment? And conveniently, they were looking for a volunteer coordinator. So that started the next five years um, into graduation and post-graduation of me living in Davis. And I worked for... um, an animal rescue organization. Um, like I said, very small, not many employees. I kind of did different things. Title was volunteer coordinator and outreach. Um, but like I said, I did lots of different things. Um, and as I was kind of, you know, fleshing things out, I realized, um, I still liked the scientific kind of behavior thing. I read, you know, I always would read books about, you know, animal behavior and kind of that psychological aspect of humans and dogs. Um, and that, I started getting more interested in behavior. So I did a, an apprenticeship with a trainer back in California in Davis. Um, really liked it. Nancy Oplanoff with Thinking Dogs. Uh, we know we did a puppy class. We did a basics, mm-hmm. you know, manners class. She does like a canine college. So they do like school field trips down, down in downtown Davis. Oh, and they go like, so you know, hang out. And like so cool. parents go and get like a drink with their dog not oh. watching. So they can, they can go in and the dog gets independence and mat work and all that kind oh. of stuff so she's done some of that um but uh and then you ended up moving to new york York. yes so Um, came to new york got my uh get got the program at um animal or hunter college and uh and we has a master's in animal behavior and conservation from hunter which has a great program yep and uh started off because i thought i still wanted to do shelter stuff um I worked for a couple months, or nearly a year, at um, the Animal Care Centers of New York City, and then I said, oh shoot, my master's degree is, (laughs) my master's degree is really great, um, and it's going to be really great, but, um, you know, if you look at kind of dog training opportunities, um, a lot of it, they ask for um, some level of certification, Um, and this is one thing that we've discussed on our blogs and written about and everything like that, but certification in the dog training world is a very hazy thing. Um, but there's come some standardized organizations. Um, one is the Certification Council for Professional Dog Trainers. Um, one is Karen Pryor Academy, which Annie um, went through. Um, so I was like, oh, okay, 
So you need to get apprenticeship hours to get a certification, which is a nice thing to have, I guess, also in lieu of a <laughs> master's degree. Um, so then I reached out to School for the Dogs. Um, and here we are three years later. Um, <laughs> um, oh, you know, I- all those memories of when it was just, you know, Annie and Kate and me and just the one room studio on Second Street. <laughs> well, and I now think huge. <laughs> I think you were our second employee. Yeah. Uh, and that was three years ago. And um, tell us, tell us, what have you been doing in the last three years? What have I been doing in with the last for the three dogs. years? Well, and it's been a range of things. Um, you know, early, what was it? Early 2015 was it when Annie and I were first getting our feet wet with the day training program, or the day school program. Yeah, day training. Um, yeah, we started that. <laughs> we started that right around when you started, I yeah, guess. Yeah, it was right? like October. Yeah, so we did, at that point, God, it was only like one day a week. It was like one day a week day school, which now is five days a week with two afternoon sessions. Yeah, and, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's gotten crazy. Um, day school, did, day little school did we for, know. Yeah, day school for the uninitiated is our drop-off program now that we do. Um, it's uh, half day. We do, it's a half day. We do morning and afternoon sessions, and um, there's usually there's usually four dogs and a minimum of two trainers. Mm-hmm. And if we have apprentices, sometimes it's even like almost one on one. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Yeah. We have fun with them. There are buddies for those hours. Yes. So um, did day school. Sure. Right. Um, and then Which you still do sometimes. I still do sometimes. And then once I had gotten kind of more of my feet, quote unquote, wet in terms of shadowing, um, which we still institute now for our apprenticeship program, um, I started taking on, um, clients. Um, so I had taken some that had branched off from Annie and Kate, um, then started getting my own clients. So for the last three years, it's been a mix of, you know, day school. It's been a mix of private clients, which is, you know, seeing them one-on-one mm-hmm. and working with just puppies, working with leash reactivity, working with all kinds mm-hmm. of fun things, um, in the the grand big world of uh, of New York City, and teaching classes and teaching classes, um, prep and all that kind of good stuff. And but here's a question that I bet nobody's ever asked you before. We'll see. <laughs> when did you first learn about classical conditioning? Hmm. Okay, so when I first learned about, well, I mean, everyone knows about Pavlov from school elementary school well also everybody knows about classical conditioning they just don't well yeah exactly yeah yeah so i think people don't know what it's called i think for most people but a lot um, of people don't know about pavlov and and don't learn about pavlov in school so so tell us about well then i guess i got a good education right Uh, so pavlov (laughs) your catholic uh, my my catholic school girl days so pavlov um was uh russian russian and he um was studying uh, gastrointestinal yes. systems. Yes. Um, in and dogs. in dogs. And uh, he early had, 1900s. Um, and he was studying the gastrointestinal system and was trying to get them to. He was measuring their sal their salivation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he had would get them to salivate um, with what we now define as an unconditioned stimulus, which was right. meat. I feel like that's a very pop culture reference, too. Yeah, but do you remember, like, learning that in school? I don't. I mean, I, I, I guess did. I did. Yeah. You did? You remember, mm-hmm. like, a class where they taught you this? Not a specific class, but yeah. I well, mean, in, like, psych. Well, I don't know. Not all schools have psych. 
<laughs> a psych section. In I don't class. think I learned about. I don't think I learned about what classical conditioning was in school. But to, to finish talking about Pavlov. So, so Pavlov, anyway, he actually, I believe. I mean, I, I wasn't there. <laughs> but I believe it started out as a nuisance where he was entering the room to start these experiments, but the dogs were salivating before they got the food. Yeah, probably. And he was like, wait, actually, I think there's something happening here. So he just started uh, doing different things, like having someone else enter the room with a white lab coat to see if white lab coat would become a conditioned stimulus. And um, But we're getting ahead of ourselves because we haven't even defined what a conditioned stimulus is. Exactly. It, and dog training has all of these terms like this, which are not purely dog training terms that relate to the science of behavior mm-hmm. that I feel like when you explain it, it's so obvious, but they sound, <laughs> they sound off-putting and, and fancy. Yes. So Pavlovian conditioning basically is uh, called Pavlovian conditioning because Pavlov realized that whatever preceded giving these dogs their food would eventually take on the meaning basically of the food. Mm-hmm. And that um, hearing, in, in the case of Pavlov, they I think it was it was actually a buzzer, but buzzer, bell, whatever, yeah. is presented prior to giving the food will eventually create the same reaction as the food itself. Mm-hmm. And that became known as Pavlovian conditioning. And there's been lots of pop culture references as of late. The one I think of is the, uh, the office reference where... Uh, uh, Jim keeps on turning on, or he keeps shutting off his computer, um, or turning it on, and then as soon as he's, so you hear the Microsoft noise, um, and then he'll offer um, Dwight across the way from him um, a a mint. Oh, damn, that was another file. Gonna have to reboot again. Hey Dwight, do you want an Altoid? In school, we learned about this scientist who trained dogs to salivate at the sound of a bell by feeding them whenever a bell rang. So for the past couple weeks, I've been conducting a similar experiment. What? One open. Okay. So you sometimes, if you keep your eye out, sometimes you'll see it in kind of like television and stuff because people think it's a kind of funny, funny well, association. Well, if you keep your eye out, though, you'll see it in every part of your exactly. life. Yeah, I mean, yes, you'll see references to Pavlovian conditioning. But what's funny to me is sometimes when people are watching dog training happening, they'll say, oh, it's so Pavlovian. But really, I want to be like, yeah, but so is like everything. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like I've, any any. Anything that we're not born knowing about that we associate a meaning with eventually because of paired repetitions is something that has been classically conditioned, um, Pavlovian conditioned. So what's an example of an unconditioned? An unconditioned stimulus is something that already kind of has, it just has a reinforcing factor to it that you didn't um, need to that be you born. didn't need to be you know you kind of think of like natural things um so like you know like quote unquote instinctual like food um and you think you know something that is inherently pleasurable um that didn't require any you know learning additional learning on top of that obviously food sex food sex right and it doesn't necessarily have to be it doesn't have to necessarily be a positive so touching your hand to a hot <laughs> stove 
you know, I would con- consider that an unconditioned stimulus because the immediate well, effect of flame. the heat. It's more yeah. like the flame, okay. would, wouldn't True. it? Be yeah. The flame, that's the unconditioned stimulus. You know, where we have an inherent fear fear of something mm-hmm. like fire. Yep. Um, or, you know, uh, a baby doesn't have to be taught to go to a nipple. You know, they're not conditioned to to know what a nipple is. Um, yes. But dogs and humans and all of us are conditioned to know what lots of things are mm-hmm. based on the associations we, we make with those things. Yeah, I think a funny example I like to give is um, th- it, this, these are common things that I do every single, like that happen every single night and like my husband and I like joke about it now. Um, you know, common like things for my dogs are, um, well, the one embarrassing, you know, uh, the one com- embarrassing conditioned uh, response that my dogs had elicited is when I used to work from home for the rescue that I worked with back in California. I used to wear pajamas all the time. And as soon as I started putting on actual clothes, my dogs had the response that, oh my God, mom's going outside. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they'd get really, really excited, which was somewhat embarrassing. Um, but kind of on my day-to-day life now, um, you know, uh, my husband and I will watch TV at night. And the dogs are kind of relaxing and calm and everything like that. And as soon as the television goes off and you hear the, the television noise, boop, like, boop, they like <laughs> bolt because they're like, oh my God, it's not, it's like we're going to dinner or, you know, it's going to bed. We're having our quote unquote like second dinner because one of my dogs has issues, but whatever. Um, <laughs> and we're doing a second dinner and they immediately run to the, the food bowls and they just like stand there and like. Kenny and I will be like, no, we just like shut off the television because we don't want to watch it anymore. And then the dogs just get really amped up and really upset because they're like, no, 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 no. We heard the buzzer. Even though so they, we haven't when they done hear anything. that, they run to their food bowls. Exactly. Well, that's actually that would be an easy thing to teach as an added cue. Yep. Exactly. Add a cue to which. Yep. So if you wanted to teach your dog run to your food bowl, you would say, run to your food bowl and then mm-hmm. turn off your TV. Yep. <laughs> and then inherently they're so. And then eventually they're good. And then eventually. Run to your food bowl will become the um, the conditioned stimulus. Exactly, which is really just what language is, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's it's so interesting when I th- when I think about learning languages in that way, you know. Yeah, and that's and how it's really I, you all know. you're doing is teaching your dog a language by saying like that thing that you're doing now. We used to call it put a boop, but now we're gonna call it run to your food bowl. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like I tell clients when I'm saying like, don't start a don't start labeling, like, don't start giving a cue to something if your dog doesn't know it. Um, I like to define it as, like, oh, this is, we're just, like, labeling it for the dog. Like, you've already done this in an existence. Um, you know, my hand signal up or me standing here has already been, uh, you know, your response to sit. And now we're just going to label this whole sequence of behavior of you sitting with this random arbitrary word. Right. Because they don't really know right. what it means. Like, if I was trying to teach you how to say go to the bathroom in French, I could say... I could say, Anna Marie, go to the bathroom in French <laughs> over and over and over. But if you don't know what that means, mm-hmm. I mean, eventually you might go to the bathroom and then I could like throw a party, but it's like, it's more efficient to, if for I me was to just going to the bathroom and yes. then you to label it. Right. Oh, that's what right. it is. And otherwise what I've really trained is like, I've trained in frustration with you and the mm-hmm. eventual, the eventual going to the bathroom is just part of like a larger thing that has now been paired with like me saying going to the bathroom a million times. And who wants to tell anyone to go to the bathroom a million times? Um, you know, what's funny. Speaking of going to the bathroom, um, 
<laughs> Everything's funny relating to that. Exactly. Um, I, for Amos, when I when I um, rinse my mouth out with mouthwash, he he like perks up. He's like, okay, we must be going out. Yes. <laughs> Well, and my tooth- dad toothbrushing too, like toothbrushing at night. That's like, another, you know, that the, they immediately like run to the back door. Or my dad used to, um, used to say that our dog had a concept of money because every time he would rip a check out of the checkbook, he, she would run to the door because it meant that they were going to the bank and oh, he would bring funny. her to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> um, so classical conditioning is one of my favorite topics of uh, of all time. One, which doesn't relate to dog training, is that um, it's, it's all of advertising, basically. Yeah. Um, and it relates very much to how we relate to each other and the way that we present ourselves and choices that we make. So I think all of that's fascinating. Um, but the other thing is that it, uh, if you can focus on classical conditioning in dog training before you start focusing on operant conditioning, which is the other kind of learning that we're dealing with mm-hmm. with dogs. I think if, in most cases, if an owner, whether it has a dog who is just starting out training or is a puppy or a dog who has issues, if all they think about is the classical conditioning, almost always uh, you're setting up your dog for success and you're also... Um, you're also keeping bad things from happening as far as fear goes because I think most of the time the behaviors we don't like in dogs stem from fear. Personally, as we were discussing ourselves being classically conditioned, after years of doing skateboard reactivity work, I have such a natural, almost classical conditioned response, and I feel like a it lot is of classically people, conditioned. In terms of when I hear a skateboard, I don't even have to be working a dog, and my immediate response is to go find it, which is one of, <laughs> which is one of the behaviors that will teach dogs to, in order to, you know, so uh, one move their that, head away right. and go hunting we, for food. We have a lot of dogs who are so scared of skateboards that just, there doesn't even have to be a person on a skateboard, just the yep. very sight of a skateboard is scary One of my them. foster dogs back in California, we literally put a skateboard out, and we didn't expect there to be response, and he literally peed on the floor. Um, we he were in just the house. By, right? Yeah, he was just scared by the sight of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and but, and then there, or <laughs> I was gonna say we should talk about Rudy. Oh, Rudy. Really? Oh. <laughs> um, but a lot, a lot of a lot of dogs. Rudy's the king of classic yeah. conditioned fears. <laughs> many many dogs have fear of skateboards, um, and like you're saying, there are I've met owners and I've I've felt it myself actually at times like you're saying you felt it that. <laughs> you explain. So, like, you're so in tune. Like, when I'm working with a skateboard reactive, I just saw a client the other day that was skateboard reactive, and they were like, okay, she's heightenedly, my dog's heightenedly aware when we go outside. And now I'm heightenedly aware. And so there's all this just, like, even though you're, you're essentially you're working off your dog's fear, and it becomes this own, like, 
intense class, you know, classically conditioned response where you're just like, oh my God, I'm on the look all right. the time. I need to wear a skateboard. Oh my God, there's a skateboard. Oh my God. And right. then you almost become the same response as your dog does right. just in the anticipation of right. it. Even though you don't have an association of it. Um, your initial association of a skateboard was, oh, it's a person skateboarding. But now that you're stemming off your dog's fear, everyone now has this <laughs> conditioned response to a skateboard. Um, and these kinds of fears that jumping that happens like that can happen from from one part of the thing to the other in the same way it like it can go from you know the sound of the skateboard to the sight of the skateboard yep. it can then be like the kid who's on the skateboard that's causing fear mm-hmm. like Rudy yep so generalization right um, so we have this one dog Rudy that both Anna Marie and I have worked Rudy. with Rudy <laughs> shout out to Rudy um so yeah Rudy um he is a very interesting uh very interesting personality um Rudy has uh, a lot of fears and I think this is one thing that's important to discuss in terms of um, conditioning and fear responses is that um, it doesn't necessarily, you know, a lot of people think, and that's one thing that we always deal with with my background in the shelter world is, you know, people are very in tune of wanting to get a puppy from the get-go in terms of, oh, I'm going to prevent X, Y, and Z behaviors. Um, But one thing that's important to think about with classical conditioning is that you can't always anticipate what the response is going to be and what that fear might lead. So with Rudy, he was actually adopted as a puppy. Um, And they did all the right things, right? He has the best owners. And he has the best owners. I would like like to be adopted by them. Yes, exactly. And uh, Rudy was actually adopted as a puppy um and in you know kind of my background of experience um you know they did all the right things that you would say on paper right they took the training classes they did all of that but for one thing that is aware to think about is Rudy probably just genetically which is sometimes you can't overcome genetics Rudy genetically is probably just more of a fear responsive dog um he just has a more heightened fear response so despite doing classical conditioning as probably recommended in this puppy kindergarten, um, he just tends to be a little bit more reactive. Or not. We yeah, can, or not. If we that. can go back to that. Um, he can maybe be a little bit more reactive um, than another dog that could have been the same age and adopted at the same right. time. Right, I think that's very true. People, people, people make the false generalization that mm-hmm. if a dog has problems, it's because something happened to the dog, or if the dog has problems, it's because they're reflecting the human's problems, yep. and those are both such fallacies. Like, yep. Because, I mean, I, I, I think it's possible for it to go in the other direction. I think mm-hmm. it's possible that if you have, if you are a person and you have serious problems, your dog might... <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> have serious problems. But I don't... But I think it would be false to say that that's, that's always the case. Yep. Because we have owners who have done everything right, sometimes since the dog was literally born. Yep. And the dog has issues, and... I mean, is it possible that it was caused by something that, you know, was some something that happened that none of us can perceive and that's yeah, the exactly. reason? Yes, that's possible, but it's also possible the dog was just born with like higher levels of anxiety. Yeah, higher levels of anxiety. All, is, we all agree. <laughs> which is part of which is part of, you know, like fear evolutionarily has a lot of benefits. Yep. Um talking about fear. So Rudy though, yeah. Rudy, I call I call him the Woody Allen of dogs cuz mm-hmm. he's just like the, the the extra extra neurotic yeah oh, you know it, but it also I, we should say it, it can be epigenetics right yep 
Like, it's it's not just, you know, everything's been fine for every generation, and then this one dog pops out with issues. Yep. Like, stress in the mother, or yep. which is would that be, for cause. him, very, very likely, considering that he was a shelter, you know, as a puppy. Uh, to okay. to I list mean, some of the things that Rudy is afraid of, um, one is uh, children. Now... Having had Rudy since he was four months old, his owners know fairly well that there was no reason for Rudy to not like children. Um, uh, you know, it's not like he was exposed. He didn't have children growing up, anything like that. Um, there weren't kids that were in the house that were potentially, you know, messing with him or anything. But for some reason, kids just tend to elicit a very strong fear response in them. Um, he'll bark, um, you know... He'll, he'll lunge, anything like that. Now, that all this being said, Rudy has gotten far, far better. <laughs> With the help of our training, I don't want to say that, I don't want to act that, you know, uh, we had, we've been working for all this time. But one thing to be aware of is... One thing, and we can get a little bit more into it, um, one thing that we do utilize with classical conditioning is what we call this idea of counter-conditioning. But, so at Rudy, but what I think is funny about Rudy with the generalization is Rudy went from, not funny, I mean, it's just a... Unfortunate. Unfortunate, but it's a good example, is Rudy went from being um, scared of, you know... I think something having to do with movement. I mean, movement, I think the children yeah, yeah. thing has to do with children running around. Yep. And that has now extended to, to any just child. But, standing. But also, you know, uh, skateboards and where where he used to live in the East Village was right near our school. And there'd be, like, lots of kids on scooters. scooters. Yep. And so it seems like it, it, it also had to do with anything having to do with wheels. Wheels. And Essentially, the, the main goal is that we change the association that has already been classically conditioned. So... You know, you counter classical condition something. Um, and a lot of times we utilize food. Um, but one thing that is also important is that, especially for something that is fear-based, um, sometimes it can be movement away from the object. Um, so rather than requiring the dog to just stand there and then continue to get fed food, which might be too stressful, um, you can also reward by moving away right, or you're, giving an alternate you're, behavior. You're pairing the f- formerly scary thing with something good, good. Yep. which could be distance or it could mm-hmm. be food or it could be a scratch on the head. Yes. Um, but usually we use the bigger guns like <laughs> the bacon, the turkey. Yep. Um, because so, it's, it tends to be a little bit more higher value mm-hmm. and a little bit more salient to the dog than something like kibble or just movement. So in a positive note of Rudy, <laughs> the mister of all problems, we love him very much. Um, I've actually gotten to the point with him, because um, with skateboards, one of the, the bane of our existence with training is that a lot of it is the unpredictable, um, which is really hard when um, dogs like to have consistency in their lives. And then when you just kind of throw skateboards at them every which way, it's scary. Um, so what I've actually been able to do um, is we go to the McCarran Dog Park in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg, um, and we'll just kind of stand outside the park, um, and every time he looks, and he gets a treat. Um, Rudy has also played the game so much that now he just does a quick look, so I've had to build in duration for him. Um, <laughs> but we've gotten to a point where he actually is now refusing to leave the skate park because he knows it eats equals turkey. So I would say that's a good sign of his conditioning. Now, that doesn't mean 
in that context, in that skate park where it's a little bit more controlled and managed and he's working with me and he knows there's all that kind of stuff, he doesn't have that same, it doesn't elicit that same fear response. But, you know, I do check in with his parents and, you know, sometimes, you know, 10 o'clock evening walks when a random skateboard comes out from around the corner, he still will resort back to that, you know, more conditioned classical response where it's more that fear based right because thing. it's hard to practice those moments but yep. by doing the work you're doing you would think you're lessening it to some yep. extent now here's here's the surprise answer that I think you're going to give to my question or surprise to our perhaps to our listeners okay Rudy goes crazy let's say it's 10 p.m. they're walking him and the guy uh, the food delivery guy goes by what do you tell and he goes nuts mm-hmm. what do you tell them to do I would tell them to move away, increase distance, right? Because that at that point, that's going to be more rewarding. Or, um, you, or you could give them something like a find it or treats at the ground, right? Because you're still wanting to change that association. Um, even if he is reacting, it's just kind of the experience. And by reacting, we mean barking. When barking. I, well, the reason I think this is surprising is because I know when I first started to understand mm-hmm. this in dog training, I was like, What? Science must be wrong. You're rewarding the barking. You're rewarding the barking. And this is like this, the special thing about classical conditioning that's so so important to remember is behavior doesn't matter. Yep. It's not about what they're doing. Purely experiential. It's it's about what they're feeling. It's not, right. It's about their their experience of the world and what they're doing has absolutely no um, no play. Mm-hmm. Right? It's... it's um, do you explain it to people that way? Yeah, I, I say like I, I remind people that it's just kind of it doesn't the behavior doesn't factor into anything. It's literally just I want you to experience this moment, and this moment is a scary thing. Now equals something good. Treats get shoved in my face, right? Um, because I think a lot of times it's a lot of people are very set on, especially even they're in the midst of like having a puppy and they're doing all these great things like practicing sits and downs and all that kind of stuff. It's our default to be like, Oh my dog has to earn the treat. And it's our default to be like, Oh my God, well, there's a skateboard that came by. I have to ask my dog to sit and then they get a treat and then that everything will be fine. Um, cause now my dog will learn to sit when the thing comes by and then they get a treat and blah, blah, blah. And it's really just like, like muddying like the over, water. It's, it's overthinking yeah. it. So a lot of times I just it's say, poor, like, it's no. poor language teaching, yeah. really. Um, <laughs> because that's not how it would work. Um, I don't think we would learn that well, way it, either. Well, it might. And I think that's what the reason training like that persists is, like, it might work, but, it, you know, your definition of work yep. might n- not be, you know, so spot on. Yep. So Rudy's fears have escalated to the point where he is... Uh, or was I don't know. I know it's not. He's been really, really good. But yeah. when I was working with him, I I watched. It was like it was like switching seats in the Titanic. Actually, could be able to be like, oh, we solved this problem. Oh no, like, it's like it became like a whack a mole situation because we deal with one fear and another would pop up. But invariably, the fear that would pop up would be somehow related. So mm-hmm. it, it seemed as if, and also you know, dogs are making associations all the time, every day, like every moment of every day. So a lot of the times we're not even tuned into the associations we're making. We can just they're making. We can just make guesses. But for him, I watched it go from. Uh, like anything with wheels, bikes, mm-hmm. to delivery men on the bikes, to um, anyone wearing like 
a bike-like vest, so even if they weren't on a bike, to basically anyone carrying shopping bags and anyone who was, like, Hispanic. Because people joke that their dogs are racist. Like, dogs can seriously be racist. And I think he made he made the connection that there were a lot of, well, maybe Asian, too, but, like, sort of smaller, like, darker-skinned yep. men. Those tend to be the populations in New York City yeah. that <laughs> deliver food. Yes. Um, you know, and if then, it happened to be, you know, blonde-haired and blue-eyed people, it, might have, it would have been the same thing. Well, Rudy's a great example too. as far as, as clients go, I think, of of um, people who want to do dog training with their dog and not because it's going to solve all of their dog's problems, but because they realize their dog has a propensity to, to develop problems mm-hmm. because they're very sensitive and, you know, and they're, they're having these dogs live in what might not be the absolute ideal environment. Uh, but, but they've chosen to put him in this life and he's doing great, but they're also not... You, they're using training as a way to enrich his life yep. and to ensure against mm-hmm. problems. And it's, I think a lot of the stuff that we do with him is stuff that his owners could do with him. It's just, it's, you know, if you can bring in a professional to do that and yep. for you. I've been described, my last uh, Christmas letter from them was described as the uh, anti-slash-therapist. <laughs> The beloved anti slash therapist for Rudy. Well, I mean, uh, I mean to be fair, I know it's not it's not something everyone can afford. afford. Yep. But um, I I think it's really great that like they've made this a priority. And one life. thing that is important like, to I, think I, about with I mean, you mean you know think about the money people spend on cars and, yep. and other ridiculous hobbies. Like Rudy is like the most unridiculous hobby. He is like... (laughs) He's the best. He's the best. Um, But one thing that is good to think about in terms of us discussing all of this is, yes, we do this in our, like, day-to-day life. Yes, I do an hour per week with Rudy. Um, But, you know, it's funny. The last couple weeks that I've done it, like, it's pretty common that Rudy will just come in and then, like, flat out, like, pass out on the ground. And in my view, I'm not even... I've, like, been teasing him. I'm like, Rudy, we literally did nothing today. (laughs) We literally, like, walked down to the park, I fed you some cheese, like... He was like, that was so much work. And, and he's, like, exhausted after it, and, like, his dad is, like, he's always so tired after training. So that's an important thing to think about, too, in terms like of... even just a little bit of an enrichment and doing this kind of, like, classical conditioning is, you know, classical conditioning requires a lot in terms of consistency, like, you know, every time a skateboard comes by, right, like... Right. When you're using you know, it in training. Yeah. When you're using it in training, um, but that doesn't necessarily... Classical conditioning, as Annie would agree, is happening all the time, so it doesn't have to be anything beyond your normal scope of your scheduled day. Um, you don't have to be like, oh my God, I didn't do my three-hour session of classical conditioning right. today with a skateboard. You know, just making sure that every time you have, you're going on a walk, you're having cheese out, and yeah. you know, but you're also you become you become the conditioned reinforcer too. And, and yep. you know, just the fact that you are feeding, I think, like, the fact that you are feeding your dog <laughs> at any point you know, even if it's in your kitchen, is yep. helping build a good association with you. And I think that's one reason why I think a lot of our clients always say like, oh my God, my dog loves you so much or focuses on you. It's like, we've just become giant conditioned reinforcers yeah. for feeding treats. <laughs> well, and you <laughs> and want... And the fun and excitement and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. The kisses. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I think it's also why they enjoy coming to school. Yep. 
I mean, I, I, I think most schools would do a lot better with kids if they made the food a lot better. Yeah. And I think that is <laughs> and actually... And if they made them more enjoyable places to be. Ultimately, over. that is the hugest, I mean, that's the hugest, uh, the, the hugest uh, compliment that we can get is that the school itself becomes this giant conditioned reinforcer for our clients to the point where clients get upset that they have to walk down second street and not go to school, um, where the dogs just associate this random, it's a random storefront in the East village, but, the but it has really so much meaning and conditioned response to them that they will plant themselves outside of school. Um, which is so not how I felt is, about yeah, school. Yeah, which none of us felt about school. Cause but it's a difference between, you know, training with, with positive reinforcement and, and, you know, and, and, Conditioning, classical conditioning, rather than coercion, and yep, and uh, having to be somewhere because you you feel like you have to be there. No, it's a I, legal requirement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's a legal it's a requirement. requirement to be in school. It's a legal requirement. Well, yeah, I think um, that. Uh, well, it's. I also think that if the dog likes going there, the, the person is exactly. also being classical conditioned to like going there because yeah. the dog, you know, people they see their dog light up, and, and they're they're making an association. This place makes my dog happy. Anna Marie is leaving us. I know. She's moving to California. She is going to be doing shelter work there. I say she's leaving us, but she's only she's only leaving us uh, physically. physically. <laughs> digitally, 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 emotionally. Stay tuned. Yes. <laughs> but um, thank you, Anna Marie, for You're all welcome. you've all you've done for school for the dogs for our clients. For me, um, and uh, I love you, and thank you for being on this podcast. No problem. In honor of Anna Marie, our fun dog fact of the day is about California. Did you know that the California state dog is actually the shelter dog? They chose the shelter dog to represent the state in order to draw attention to the need uh, to find homes for shelter pets. Isn't that cool? Special thanks to Ellie Lonnen for letting me use her ukulele cover of the wonderful song Abba Dabba Honeymoon. And our woof shout-out of the day goes actually to a human this week, specifically to the human who was one half of the team that created Anna Marie, her mother, Anne Arutia of Daly City, California. I know earlier in the episode, I criticized her jingle writing talents, but upon consideration, I think she might have a future in jingle writing, that is, if she wants to pair up with me and my husband, Jason. Here is our reimagining of her jingle. Some people, they have dogs. Some people, they have cats, but we have flies. They fit better into our lives. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another show. If you'd like this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review on iTunes. And of course, tell your friends. 
If you have suggestions for future topics or questions about training, please make sure to join our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash school for the dogs. See you next week.